Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. We're going to have a phenomenal episode where we listen to a classic lecture from one of the great minds of the 60s, counterculture icon, spiritual icon of the West, Alan Watts. It's going to be great. We're going to learn some more. We have a guest here, Bryn Anderson of Vital Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. I'm super glad you're here. Thanks. You were not here at the last lecture episode and I felt naked without you. I need to have a <laughs> cohort, a co-pilot on these lecture episodes. It's very interesting to do them by myself and listen and, and kind of have that uh, rapport with the, the lecture and the information. But having you here and creating that trinity is really amazing. Thank you for joining me for, for cutting out time of your schedule to be here. I'm very grateful. It's very gracious of you. Thank you for being here for this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Sorry, <laughs> I could not make it last time. That's okay. <laughs> it was kind of a last minute thing because we had a guest reschedule. And yet again, this episode is the product of a guest rescheduling. And I'm a little concerned. There is a group of UFO hunters. I found them on Instagram. They're very popular. The group is called Contact Tour. And if you were listening, previous episodes, specifically the Terrence McKenna episode, you would know that I mentioned that this episode was supposed to be Contact Tour, where I interviewed Tyler and other members of the Contact Tour team. We had a great email exchange. Everything was set up. It was supposed to be debuting today. This was supposed to be the episode. I'm a little concerned because they just vanished. Vanished? Vanished. And I don't mean, okay, I'm not getting mm. response to my emails. It's your emails are now undeliverable. All the emails that I have been sending to the person named Tyler, who's probably an incredibly awesome guy, are now undeliverable. The same email address, everything. Their Instagram has gone silent for days. Facebook, they just vanished into thin air. I can't believe it. I don't know what happened. We're going to reschedule with them at a later time. I hope they're okay. Contact tour. If you're listening. Contact tour. Contact me. Contact <laughs> me. What's up? My email is coincidentally contact at midnight on earth.com. We were emailing back and forth. They're an incredible group. They liked my podcast. Everything was going great. And then literally they vanished. I'm wondering people, this is a very real concern. I'm wondering if they got abducted. Did they get abducted? Did they want to be abducted? Did they make the choice to get on the ship and never look back? It's a possibility. Or Goodbye. maybe they knew too much. They knew too. <laughs> hopefully That's possibility. Hopefully that. <laughs> Doesn't have any negative connotations. They knew too much, then they had to leave the planet. There you go. You got to come with us now. Yes, to the other planet. Not uh, you knew too much, so therefore you are now uh, 
fish food. Oof. I don't even <laughs> want to think about that. I was, but I want what I want to think about is how I don't know what happened with Contact Tour. That's what happened with this episode. I told everyone it was going to be Contact Tour. It's now listening to this classic lecture with Bryn Anderson, which let me tell you people is always a blessing. I can't remember when it wasn't a blessing to be with Bryn Anderson. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it's fun to have a compatriot in this journey to Ascension, like we talked about with Harmony Fronter House last episode. So this lecture from Alan Watts is called Knowing Myself by Letting Go. It's such an incredible lecture. Could be also titled Knowing Yourself by Letting Go. It's tapping into that Taoist, Buddhist understanding that we're just all this one thing. Everything is this one thing, the Tao. You live in the moment. You live in the flow. You live with that understanding. Stop second guessing. Stop overthinking. Just be. I think that's part of the message of Alan Watts with this conversation and he he uh you know he's not as popular you could say as some of the other speakers and uh luminaries of counterculture but he is pretty well known but you know the drill before we do anything else before we listen to that lecture i need you to follow me on instagram if you have not done that already at midnight underscore on underscore earth that is the address if you follow me there, it puts me in Instagram's algorithm. I'm a slave to Zuckerberg. Puts me in his algorithm. <laughs> so other people that want to know this stuff, that want to get exposed to this information, they see it. It pops up in their feed. It's for the guests. It's not for me. I'm willing to take the fall for Zuckerberg and do those things even though they feel strange and unnatural. I'll do those things to get the information out there. I'll do it for the guests. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, there's a button that you can click that connects us. Click that button so you know when the new episodes drop. And the most important thing, I say this every episode, and I'm not going to stop until we reach 1 million followers. Tell a friend about this podcast, people you know that like these type of subjects, these type of conversations. Find them. They look like they might like this podcast and you see them in the grocery store. Don't hesitate. Tell them about this. So then it grows and then it grows and then they become your special friend. And who knows how that would manifest. <laughs> okay. So back to Alan Watts' bio. I got a guy before we listen to his lecture, we have to understand his bio. We got to know his bio. So here we go. Alan Wilson Watts was a British writer and speaker known for interpreting and popularizing Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism for a Western audience. Alan Watts was among the first to interpret Eastern ideologies for a Western audience. Born outside of London in 1915, he discovered a nearby Buddhist lodge in his youth. Upon moving to the United States in 1938, Allen became an Episcopal priest and then relocated to Millbrook, New York, where he wrote his pivotal book, 
The Wisdom of Insecurity, a message for an age of anxiety. He moved to San Francisco in 1951, where he began teaching Buddhist studies. And in 1956, began his popular radio show, Way Beyond the West. By the early 60s, Allen's radio talks aired nationally, and the counterculture movement adopted him as a spiritual spokesperson. He wrote and traveled regularly until his passing in 1973. His body was cremated in a Buddhist ceremony shortly thereafter. And he's another one that's teaching us from the other side. Our ghostly guests that have graced this podcast through their rare recordings are still there on the other side giving us this new information. New for some people or affirmations for others. It's, it's still really positive. Here's a really interesting quote that Alan Watts wrote. I, I, I want to read this one and then we'll go into the lecture. Religions are divisive and quarrelsome. They are a form of one-upmanship because they depend on separating the saved from the damned, the true believers from the heretics, the in-group from the out-group. All belief is fervent hope and thus a cover-up for doubt and uncertainty. Okay, so that was Alan Watts. So he has incredible things to say, and we're going to listen to some of that. Bryn, what do you think about that? Well, actually, what I was thinking about was, um, I think it's interesting how he wrote the book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, A Message for an Age of Anxiety in when the late forties probably or early fifties. And I always think that we're in such an age of anxiety right now that I don't know. It's always interesting when we listen to these people from beyond the grave who wrote so long ago about things that are still very much present and even yeah, amplified still relevant. today. Still definitely relevant, still definitely happening. I think maybe the age of anxiety started at that time and it's, it's still going until we, until we manifest that new paradigm mm -hmm. that Harmony Fronterhouse and myself were talking about just last episode. Yay. Yay okay. to Harmony. So now we're going to get back to the lecture. I'm not sure when this lecture is from. I'm sure it was probably in the 60s somewhere. It's got to be at least before 1973 because that was when he graduated into the other dimension. Okay, so here we go. Alan Watts. Knowing myself by letting go. And then we'll talk more afterwards, so stay tuned. I started out yesterday to discuss what the self means in Hindu philosophy. The principle tattvam asi, that art thou, meaning that the self is the basis of all being. And being is not something into which we come, but out of which we proceed. In popular language, we say, I came into this world, as if you came from somewhere else altogether, from outside. But you don't. You come out of this world, just in the same way as the leaves come from the tree. And so in that way, you are an expression of it, and the self meaning itself, self meaning identity, self meaning basis, ground, is what everybody fundamentally is. 
Then I went on to discuss the world as the self in the sense of the, the cosmos as the self, the great cycles of time in which, according to Hindu philosophy and mythology, the world is manifested and then again withdrawn. And now I want to go on to discuss the human world as the self. Well now, there have in the known history of mankind been about three types of culture. We'll call them hunting cultures, agrarian cultures, and industrial cultures. The hunting culture seems to have been the earliest. And agrarian cultures arose when hunters learned to farm and therefore had to settle in certain places. And it was then that men built cities. And when we pass from the hunting to the agrarian culture, we notice two very important changes occur. In the hunting culture, every man is expert in the whole culture. That's because he spends a good deal of time alone in the forests or on the hills. And so he has to know how to make clothes, how to cook, how to build, how to fight, ride, and all those things. But as soon as people become settled in cities, we get a division of labor because it's obviously more practical when you're all living together for some people to specialize in some things and some in others. The other important difference is the difference of religion between the hunting culture and the agrarian culture. The religious man of the hunting culture is generally known as a shaman, S-A-H-A-M-A-N. And a shaman is a kind of weird individual, and I mean weird in the ancient sense of the word, not queer, but weird in the sense of magic. Because he is a person of a peculiar type of sensitivity who finds initiation into the shaman role by going off by himself for a long time into the depths of the forests or the heights of the mountains. And in that isolation, he comes in touch with a domain of consciousness which is known by all sorts of names, the spirit world, the ancestors, the gods, or whatever. And his knowledge of that world is supposed to give him a peculiar powers of healing, of prophecy, of uh, magic in general. The thing that you must note, though, about a shaman is that his initiation is found by himself. He does not receive initiation from an order or a guru. On the other hand, the religious man of the agrarian community 
is a priest. And a priest is almost invariably an ordained person. He receives his power from a community of priests or from a guru. In other words, from tradition. Tradition is all important in the agrarian community. Now then, reasonably enough, the first communities are stockaded enclosures. They are made of palings. And so we speak of people being within the pale and beyond the pale. And we cross the word paling we still use in fencing and you know that the Spanish for a tree is palo. So here is a primitive stockaded community and as often as not this community will settle at a crossroads for obvious reasons. Where roads cross that's where people meet and so it's liable to have four gates and these crossing main streets. And that immediately establishes four divisions of the city. And so oddly enough, in Hindu society, there are four castes based on the four fundamental divisions of labor. And number one <coughs> is the caste of priests, and they're called Brahmana. Number two is the caste of warriors and also rulers and they're called Kshatriya. Number three is the caste of merchants and tradesmen and they're called Vaishya and number four are laborers and they are called Shudra. So those are the four principal roles in the world of settled humanity. It's interesting, I said people settled in cities because they had to plant. And there are many legends to the effect that what they were mostly concerned with planting were grapes for wine, and they cultivated vineyards. And uh, it's said of Noah that after the flood in the Bible, the first thing he did was to plant a vineyard. He knew which side was up. <laughs> So now, Was then that a those joke are or? the roles. Those are, uh, you might say, masks, as it were, of the Brahman in this game called the social game. Now then, when you enter society, you are born into a caste. And this is very understandable in a community where you don't have a generalized system of education. You don't go to school and therefore you learn what to do in life from your parents and your family. So if you grow up as a carpenter's son, it never occurs to you to do anything else but carpentry. Why would you? You might become a better carpenter than your father but still, that would be the natural thing to do. It's only when one is exposed to school and then the people begin to talk about, well, what do you want to be in life? That people get the idea that they might be anything. So if the 
uh, if this sort of way of life is natural to you, you don't find it particularly objectionable. Of course, all kinds of weird uh, complications and rituals and prohibitions grow up in the course of time that can make this system very cumbersome, as it has been until quite recently in India. Then what happens is this. You go through an evolution in your development in this community, which has first of all the stage called brahmacharya, studentship or apprenticeship. After that you enter the stage of grihastha, meaning householder. And a householder has two duties. One is called artha, A-R-T-H-A, and the other kama, K-A-M-A. Artha means the duties of citizenship, partaking in the political life of the community. Kama, K-A-M-A, means the cultivation of the senses, of aesthetic and sensual beauty. And therefore, karma includes the art of love, the arts of beautification, of dress, of cooking, and all that kind of thing. So that the Kama Sutra is the scripture about love. Kama, in a sense, means passion, and is the great Hindu manual of how to behave sexually. It's a book that every child ought to read on gaining puberty uh, so that he would get some sense of how to make love without being a mere baboon. Uh, then there is also the Arthashastra, Shastra, and that is the scripture about rulers and uh, the, the way of the Kshatriya caste. Now, so you've got these stages now, Brahmacharya, which is studentship, Artha and Kama, they go together and they constitute the duties of Grihastha, of a householder. Beyond that, there is the duty of Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, and Dharma has many, many meanings in Sanskrit. It can mean something like law or justice, could even mean slightly righteousness, but not as we have come to understand that word in common speech today. Perhaps rightness would be better than righteousness. But dharma has a primary meaning of method. So when we speak of the dharma of the Buddha, the Buddha's doctrine, it is the Buddha's method, not law. So a, a citizen also has to conform to dharma. And uh, that is to say to ritual and ethical and moral game rules for the community. But now, when in the course of time he has established his household, he has taught his oldest son to take over the governorship of the household, the father, or for that matter, mother, may enter into a new stage of life altogether, which is not grihastha, but is called Vanaprastha, and that means 
forest dweller as distinct from householder. Now you see what's happened. We've gone full cycle. We came out of the forest as a hunter. We settled in a community and indulged in what is called in Sanskrit loka sangraha. Sangraha means upholding. Loka, the world. Upholding the world game. And that is everybody's dharma or duty. Dharma can also be translated duty. And svadharma, S-V-A in front of dharma, means your own duty. Or better, your own function, which we would translate into English as vocation. So everybody's caste work is his svadharma. And of course these castes are subdivided into various other kinds of specializations. When you have fulfilled your svadharma, you go into the Vanaprastha stage. Now, anciently that meant that you actually did go out into the forest and you became, of all things, it's called a Shramana in Sanskrit. S-R-A-M-A-N-A. And it is thought that that is the word shaman. You see, what happens is this then, that an individual who all his life long has played the social game is then says, well, now I've done that. I've assumed this role. I've become identified with Tinker Tailor, Soldier Sailor, whatever it was. But now who am I, really? In order to find that out, I have to go off by myself. Why? Because... You have a role conception, a mask conception of yourself because other people tell you who you are. We are constantly in every social interchange in the most common remarks telling other people who they are. Everything leads up to that. The way I act towards you, the way you act towards me, tells me who I am and tells you who you are. For example, you come and sit here and listen to me talk. You are, by doing that, telling me I'm some kind of a teacher. And you're telling yourselves that you're some kind of students. And that's only one thing, you see, one little incident. In business, every day, in your housework and everything you do, everybody around you is telling you what you are and who you are by expecting certain behavior from you, which if you're a reasonable and socially inclined person, you perform because that's what's expected of you. So you are told who you are. So when we come, we'd had enough of that, you see. But this is, no, let's not listen to all this anymore. That's why uh, the Shramana, or the Vanaprastha, one of the first things he practices is silence. It's called Mauna, M-A-U-N-A. And he may take a vow not to speak for a month or a year. And after about a month of Mauna, you don't only stop talking, but you stop thinking in words. And that's a very curious experience when it happens because 
all the senses take on a tremendous intensity. You see things which you've never seen before because you stop codifying and classifying the world by thinking. Sunsets appear incredibly more vivid and uh, flowers are enchanting. The whole world comes alive to the Mauni. The only danger is this, the Mauni has to be careful because he loses all moral discrimination. In other words, if the Mauni gets involved in a riot, he joins the riot. Because that's just the way things are going, you see. And so he has to be careful. And that's why in this state of Vanaprastha, the new man in the game will seek out a guru, a teacher, who is, has been through the whole discipline of yoga or whatever it is, that is practiced by Ivana Prasta and will help him out and see that he doesn't get into trouble. That's why a guru, when he accepts a student, is always said to become responsible for that individual's karma. Karma, you know, means activity and also the results of activity. So you see what's happened. This man who goes into the Vanaprastha stage of life takes off every sign that would identify him as someone. He does away with his name. He does away with the usual clothes he would wear and puts on uh, usually a yellow or some kind of a robe, or he may more often than that be really naked and may have a loincloth or not even that. And often these people cover themselves with ashes and uh, their hair is matted and they don't take care of themselves that way anymore because they're outside the pale. You see, they are outcasts, but they are upper outcasts. Below them are the lower outcasts, known as the today the Harijan, the name that Gandhi gave them, the untouchables. And the untouchables were the aboriginal peoples of India. When the Aryan invasion occurred, at a rather vague date, but shortly after 2000 BC, the Aryans uh, formed these castes, and the people who were originally in the land, like the Indians here, were considered to be outcasts. They were beyond the pale. So, you have here a marvelous microcosm. You have a political and social analog of the manifestation and withdrawal of the worlds, of the Lord playing the game, or the self playing the game of being all of us, and then as each individual reaches moksha, the self realizes in terms of an individual life that it is the self. So exactly in this way the child representing the self on the way in comes into this world, plays around for a while. <coughs> there are four castes just as there are four yugas to the Kalpa cycle, you remember? And then out it goes, back to the forest. 
we would say back to nature. But you see, the outgoing stage of Vanaprastha is a much higher state in the course of evolution than the hunting uh, society person who is primitive. He isn't simply going back to where he came from. He's spiraled. He's come round to an equivalent position, but at a higher level. And what he has gained in the interim is self-awareness. I mean that too in the ordinary sense when we speak of self-consciousness. See, it's not much fun to be happy and not know it. We need a certain resonance. Self-consciousness is an echo in our heads, an echo of what we do, but wouldn't be aware of doing it if there wasn't an echo. When you see yourself in a mirror, that mirror is a visual echo of your face. And that's why in a room such as this, it's a very comfortable room for me to talk in, because it has resonance. And so self-consciousness is neurological resonance. Now you know how troublesome resonance can get if it's not properly worked out. You can get echoes that just won't stop. So you go into a great cave somewhere and you say, Hi! It says, Hi, 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 All up in the distance. That's very confusing. Now that's the sort of snarl that self-consciousness can get into. And we call it anxiety. When I keep, keep, keep thinking, did I do the right thing in the course of some performance? If I'm constantly aware of myself in a kind of anxious, critical way, my resonance becomes too high. And so I get confused and jittery. But if you learn that self-consciousness has limits. That self-awareness cannot possibly enable you to be free of making mistakes. You can learn to be spontaneous in spite of being self-aware and enjoy the echo. So what happens that having developed self-consciousness through education through work with other people, having developed all the disciplines of the culture, the Vanaprastha then becomes again as a child. But then, you see, he has what Freud says the child has from the beginning. Freud called it the oceanic feeling. And the oceanic feeling is the sensation of being one with the universe. The Vanaprastha gets that back. But it's not a child's oceanic feeling. It's an adult's oceanic feeling. Something which the psychoanalysts don't discuss. Because according to them, all oceanic feelings are regressive. But if there is a mature oceanic feeling as contrasted with the immature oceanic feeling of the child, which is as different as the oak is from the acorn. And so you can have this sensation 
you see, of total unity with the cosmos, of the, shall I call it, expansion to infinity or contraction to infinity of your identity, without forgetting society's game rules with regard to you. In other words, it doesn't mean that you forget your address, telephone number, social security number, and the name you were given. You remember all that. And you can play that game when necessary. But you know it's a game. So, there is no way, as a matter of fact, of escaping from playing these games. And the only thing is that when you find out, you see, that you are thoroughly selfish, you inquire, what is it, what is the self that I love? What is this thing that I'm so interested in advancing and in protecting? And you look very closely in to what you feel when you think you feel yourself. And you know what you find out? That yourself is everything that you thought was someone else or something else. You have no knowledge of yourself, you see, except in relation to others. Self and other are as inseparable as back and front. There is no knowledge of self without the knowledge of otherness. There is no knowledge of the voluntary without the knowledge of the involuntary, of can without can't. So they go together. And that going together of self and other is non-duality. That's Advaita. That is the self with a capital S. So through self, one finds deliverance from self. And so finally we come to the last consideration, which is the question, in what way and by what means can an individual who is under the impression that he is a separate individual, limited by and enclosed in his bag of skin, how can such a person effectively realize that he is deep down the universal self, the Brahman. This, of course, is a curious question. It proposes a journey to the place where you already are. Now, it's true that you may not know that you are there, but you are. And if you take a journey to the place where you are, you will visit many other places than the place where you are. And perhaps when you find through some long experience that all the places you go to are not the place you wanted to find, you, it may occur to you that you were already there in the beginning. And that is the Dharma, or method, as I translated that word, which all gurus, teachers of spiritual development, use fundamentally.
They are all of them tricksters. But in the most beneficent sense of the word trickster. Why trickster? Because, do you know, it's terribly difficult, in fact it's impossible, to surprise yourself on purpose. And yet, to be surprised is a great thing. But you can't plan a surprise for yourself. Somebody else can do it for you. And that is why so often a guru or teacher is necessary in this process. But let me say right from the start that a guru, there are many kinds of gurus. First of all, among human gurus, there are square gurus and there are beat gurus. <laughs> there are gurus like... Uh, that's not dated at well, all. Well, let's say a great Zen master today. Let's take Oda Roshi at Daitokuji, who is a square guru and a very good one. But you go through regular channels. Then there is a guru like uh, Mr. Gurdjieff, who is a rascal guru, who leads you in by means that are very, very strange indeed. Then there are gurus that are not people. The gurus may be situations, a certain kind of problem or encounter. Even a book can to some extent be a guru. A friend can be a guru. I've often thought of writing a story about a man who is some sort of uh, guru seeker and uh, potential yogi who goes one day into an automat and sits down at a table where there is another fellow and he sort of thinks that this man looks wise and he projects onto him the idea that he is a guru and he says I feel there's something special about you and the man says oh really? Uh, really actually there's nothing special about me I happen to be an insurance salesman <laughs> and this other fellow says isn't that fascinating how modest he is <laughs> and then I want to develop this story step by step they keep meeting each other because they both eat at the same automat regularly for lunch and uh, although the, uh, the fellow really is an insurance salesman and doesn't know a thing about these things it in the end results in the enlightenment of the person who projected this image upon him <laughs> So there are, as I say, many kinds of guru. But the problem of the guru is to show the inquirer in some effective way that he already has what he's looking for. Now, in Hindu traditions, the realization of who you really are is called basically sadhana and sadhana means uh, the discipline the uh, the way of life that is necessary to follow in order to escape from the illusion that you are merely an in skin encapsulated ego 
And sadhana comprises uh, yoga. From the root yug, which means to join. And so from that, in Latin, we get jungere, to join. And in English, junction. And also yoke. And junction is also the word union, you see. All this derives from the Sanskrit root. Yug. A yoke is also a discipline. When you yoke oxen, that is a kind of a discipline. Now, strictly speaking, in the very strictest sense, yoga means the state of union. The state in which the individual self, uh, what is called uh, the jivatman, Jivatman is approximately translatable as ego. Jivatman finds that it is ultimately Atman, which equals Brahman, the Supreme Self. So yoga is the state. The strictest meaning of yoga is the state of union, and a yogi means one who has realized that union. But we find that the word is not normally used in that way, in that strict sense. Yoga in the normal way of use means the practice of meditation whereby one comes into the state of union and the yogi means one who is a traveler, a seeker, who is on the way to that point. But again, strictly speaking, there is no method to arrive at the place where you are. And no amount of searching will uncover the self. Because all searching implies the absence of the self the big self, the self with a capital S, so that to seek it is to thrust it away and to practice a discipline to attain it is to postpone realizing. There is a famous Zen story told of a monk who was sitting in meditation and the master came along and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm meditating to become a Buddha whereupon the master picked up a brick that was lying nearby and started polishing it, rubbing it. And the monk said, what are you doing? He said, I am rubbing this brick to make it a mirror. He said, by no amount of rubbing could you ever make a brick into a mirror. The master replied, by no amount of zazen could you become a Buddha. Zazen means sitting meditation. Uh, they react very badly to this story in modern-day Japan. <laughs> anyway, what is important, you see, quite radically here, supposing that I say to you, each one of you is really the great self.
you know, the Brahman. And you say, well, uh, all you've said up till now makes me fairly sympathetic to this intellectually. But I don't really feel it. What must I do to feel it really? My answer to you is this. You ask me that question because you don't want to feel it really. You're frightened of it. And therefore what you're going to do is you're going to get a method of practice so that you can put it off. So that I can say, well, I can be a long time on the way getting this thing. And uh, then maybe I'll be worthy of it after I have suffered enough. See, because we are brought up in a social scheme whereby we have to deserve what we get. And the price that one pays for all good things is suffering. But all of that is precisely postponement. Because one is afraid here and now to see it. If you had the nerve, you know, real nerve, you would see it right away. Only that would be you know, when one feels you, 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 you shouldn't have nerve like that. Why, that would be awful. That would be, that, 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 that wouldn't do at all. Because after all, I'm supposed to be poor little me. And uh, I'm not really much of a muchness. And I'm playing the role of being poor little me. And therefore, in order to be something great, like a Buddha or a uh, Jivan Mukta, one liberated in this life, I ought to suffer for it. So you can suffer for it. There are all kinds of ways invented for you to do this. And you can discipline yourself, and you can gain control of your mind, and you can uh, do all sorts of extraordinary things. I mean, you can drink water in through your rectum and uh, do the most fantastic things. <laughs> Wait, that's, but that's to lead just to like enlightenment? Being able What's going on to run here? the hundred yards in nine seconds, or uh, push a peanut up Mount Tamalpais with your nose, <laughs> or any other kind of accomplishment you want to engage in. There's absolutely nothing to do. That's his uh, reservoir of ideas, sir. The realization of the self fundamentally depends on coming off it. You know, the sort of, when we say to people who put on some kind of an act, we say, oh, come off it. And some people can come off it. They laugh and say they suddenly realize, you know, they were making fools of themselves, and they laugh at themselves, and they come off it. So in exactly the same way, the guru, the teacher, is trying to make you come off it. Now, if he finds he can't make you come off it, he's going to put you through all these exercises so that you, at the last time, when you've got enough discipline and enough suffering and enough frustration, you'll give it all up and realize you were there for the beginning and there was nothing to realize. But the guru is very clever. He says, all right, if this is the way you have to go, this is the way you have to go. You asked for it. You came to me. I didn't invite you, you see, the guru says. You came to me and I said, I want to learn yoga. Well, he said, uh, yoga is union. You, you're tattvamasi, you know, you're that. Well, now you say, I'm sorry, I don't understand that because I only get it intellectually. I don't feel it. Oh, he says, you're one of those. 
<laughs> so, see, I've got to satisfy you. The customer is always right. No? I've got to give you all this work to do. Because you can't see directly that this is so. But he's looking at you in a funny way, you see. The, uh, the guru is always saying to you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What's your game? Imagine, for example, a father confessor. And you feel terribly guilty that you've committed murders and robberies and adulteries and fornications and all kinds of arson and injury to people and financial shenanigans. And you go to this man and say, I am a terrible sinner. Oh, he says, really? He said, I have murdered somebody. He says, how many times? <laughs> and uh, you think, oh, good Lord. This man doesn't realize how awful I am. And you recite all these things. He's perfectly calm. And uh, then you say to him, well, uh, you don't seem to be very shocked. He well, said, you haven't confessed any serious sins. <laughs> he said, what do you mean by a serious sin? Well, he said, uh, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I, uh, I just feel wrong. I just feel there's something in the basis of me that feels, that tells me that I am not what I ought to be. Uh, could it be that I'm spiritually proud? That I'm egocentric? He says, no, that's not it's very usual. This is quite ordinary sin. Uh, but he says, you, you, you are guilty of something. You know, something really terrible. And uh, what could that be? Well, I have no idea. Now he says, come on, come on. Go deeper. What is the real sin you've committed? And you think, what, me? I, little me, could do something worse than murder, than worse than spiritual pride? Just little me? I mean, I'm a reasonably well-intentioned person. What could that be? And he looks at you in a funny way. He says, you know. You know, it's a kind of a Kafka-esque situation where you're accused of a crime that's not specified. And, uh, and yet the, the accuser says, you jolly well know what you've done. Of course, we can't mention it. <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's like the, 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 those laws that... Uh, are on the books in the state of California and several other states where people are accused of the abominable crime against nature. Nobody knows what it is. I mean, it, it, it can't be mentioned. It's too dreadful to be talked about. So this guy does the same thing, but it's in a different dimension. You've done it. Huh? Now, what, what did you do? See, the real crime is that you won't admit you're God. That's false modesty. <laughs> so the guru challenges you see he challenges you if you raise the question he doesn't go out and preach in the streets and say come on everybody you ought to be converted he sits down under a tree and waits and people start coming around and they offer him propositions he answers back and he challenges you in any way that he thinks is appropriate to your situation.
Now, if you've got a thin shell and your mask is easily dispatched with, he simply uses a, what we might call an easy method. He says, listen, Shiva, come off it. Don't pretend you're this guy here. I know who you are. And the guy sort of twinkles a bit and says, um, well, I guess you're right. <laughs> but the people aren't like that. They have very thick shells. And so he has to invent ways of cracking them. So here is how it goes. To understand yoga, you need to get hold of a good translation of Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra. Uh, I don't know which is the best translation. There are so many of them. It says it starts out, now yoga is explained. Mm -hmm. First verse. And the commentators say now has a special meaning because it follows from something else that you're supposed to know beforehand. That you're supposed to be, in other words, a civilized human being before you start out on yoga. We don't teach yoga to baboons. And so you're supposed to have been disciplined in artha, karma, and dharma. In politics, sensuality, and dharma, justice. And then you can start yoga. Then the next verse is, yogas chitta briti niroda, which means yoga is the cessation of revolutions of the mind. In other words, uh, you can interpret that at many levels. Chitta meaning consciousness, like a pool, like water, like a reflecting pool. If there are waves on that, it doesn't reflect, it breaks up all the reflections. So stop the waves on the mind and it will reflect reality clearly. Get a perfectly calm mind. That's one meaning of it. Or another meaning of it is stop thinking. Eliminate all contents from the mind, all thoughts, all feelings, all sensations, everything. How will you do that? Well, it goes on to say you do it by certain steps. First of all, pranayama, which means the control of the breath. Pratyahara, which means preliminary concentration. Tarana, a more intense form of concentration. Dhyana, which is the same jhana is Sanskrit for Zen, and that means profound union between subject and object, and finally samadhi, which is uh, way out. Now what's happening here? Control your mind. First of all, by breathing. Breathing is a very strange thing because breathing can be viewed both as an involuntary and as a voluntary action. You can feel I breathe and yet you can feel it breathes me. 
and they have all sorts of fancy breathing ways in yoga. They are very amusing to practice because you can get very high on them. So they set you at these tricks. And of course, if you are bright, you may begin to realize some things at that point. If you are not very bright, then you'll have to go on. And so next they really get to work on concentration. Concentrate the mind on one point. Now this can be an absolutely fascinating undertaking. I suggest that uh, you try it this way if you want to make experiments. Select a, a highlight on some bright, uh, some polished surface, copper or glass or something, where there's a little tiny reflection, say of a candle or an electric light bulb. Look at it and put your eyes out of focus so that the bright spot appears to be fuzzy. A fuzzy circle. Now look very carefully at the design in the fuzzy circle and see if you can make it out. There is a definite pattern of blur and you can have a wonderful time looking at that. <clears throat> then go back, get your eyes into focus and look at intense light. And you can go into it and into it and into it, like you know you're falling down a funnel, and at the end of that funnel is this intense light. And go down, go in, 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 in. It's the most thrilling experience. Then suddenly the guru wakes you up and says, "What are you doing that for?" Well, because I want realization. Why? Because we live in a world of, uh, if we identify ourselves with the ego, we get into trouble, we suffer, we, we're in a mess. He says, you afraid of that? Yes. So then, all that you're doing to practice yoga is based on fear. You're just escaping, you're running away. How do you think you can get realization through fear? Now, there's one to think about. So you think, well, now I've got to go on with my yoga practice, my concentrations, my exercises, but not for a fearful motive. And you know that guru, you know, he's watching you, and he's a very, very sensitive man, and he knows when you're doing, you know, he always knows what your motive is. So he puts you onto the kick of getting a pure motive. And uh, that means very deep control of the emotions. I mustn't have impure thoughts. All right, so you go along and you manage to repress as many impure thoughts as possible. And then one day he asks you, why are you repressing these thoughts? What's your motive for trying to have a pure mind? And you find out that you had an impure motive for trying to have a pure mind that you did it for the same old reason you started out the thing in the beginning, because you were afraid, because you wanted to play, get one up on the universe. And so, uh, 
eventually you find out, you see, that your mind is what is called in Sanskrit uh, mudra, mudra, which means crazy. Because it can only go in vicious circles. Everything it does to get out of a trap puts it more securely in the trap. Every step in the direction of liberation is a new tie-up. So that you started, you know, with molasses in one hand and feathers in the other. That was the original situation of man. The guru made you put them together. See, like that. And said, now pick the feathers off. <laughs> and the more it is, the more of a mess the whole thing gets. So you get involved and involved and involved by this process. And he, in the meantime, you see, has been telling you, yes, you made a little attainment today, but it was only the eighth stage and there are 64 altogether. And you've got to get to that 64th stage. And he knows how to spin it out and uh, drag it all out because you are ever hopeful that you'll get that thing, just as you might win a prize or win a special job or a great distinction and be somebody. That's the motivation all along, only it's very spiritual here. It's not for worldly recognition. You want to be recognized by the gods and the angels. But it's the same story on a higher level. So he keeps holding out these baits. And uh, as long as the pupil falls for them, he's, he holds out more baits. Until after a while, the pupil gets the realization that what he's doing is running faster and faster in a squirrel cage. That he's making an enormous amount of progress and getting nowhere. Like in Alice Through the Looking Glass, when the queen says, here, you have to ha run faster and faster to stay where you are. And so he impresses this upon you by these methods very thoroughly. And at last you find out that you, as an ego, as what you ordinarily call your mind, are a mess. That you, you just can't do this thing. You can't do it by any of the means that have been held out to you. You can concentrate, yes, you've acquired a considerable power of concentration by doing all this. But you find you're doing it for the wrong reason. And there's no way of doing it for the right reason. See, Krishnamurti does this. He's a very, very clever guru. Krishnamurti says to people, now look, there is nothing you can do to be liberated because all your efforts in the direction of liberation are phony. They are based on your desire to boost and continue your ego, and that will never lead to liberation. All you can do, he says, is to be aware of yourself as you are, without judgment. See what is. But then, if you can do that, you have no further problem. But if you try to do it, 
you're in the same mess all over again. Gurdjieff played the same game in a different way. He said, the most important thing is self-remembering. Always at every moment be aware of what you're doing. Watch yourself constantly and never, never be absent-minded. So all day, when you know you pick up the piece of paper, you realize, I'm picking up this piece of paper. And I'm opening it inside and so on. And uh, I know I'm doing it this way, so I'm not asleep. Ordinary people, you know, pick up a piece of paper. And <laughs> In this way, we are really picking up the piece of paper. <laughs> and <laughs> so all these people are doing this, you know, watching. Where do they land up? <laughs> I've told this story millions of times, really. Excuse me, but it's, it's very important. When they teach you in uh, Japanese Zen how to f use a sword, the first thing that the teacher says to the student is, now, you, you, if you're going to be a good soldier, you've got to be alert constantly because you never know where the attack's going to come from. Now, you know what happens to you when you try to be on the alert. You think about being alert, and then you're a hopeless prey to the enemy, because you're not, you're not alert. You're thinking about being alert. <laughs> you must be simply awake and relaxed. And then all your nerve ends are working, and wherever the attack comes from, you're ready. They liken this to a barrel of water. The water is just sitting there in the barrel. But the minute you make a hole in the barrel, the water immediately is ready to come out of that hole. So in the same way, the mind, when it is in the proper state, is ready to respond in any direction from which the attack may come. So this man is no longer alert in the sense of taut and anxious. Which way is it going to go? See? He's just sitting there. Like a cat sits there. And the minute anything happens, it's right there. Because it didn't have to overcome any set in a direction opposite to that from which the attack comes. If you are set for the attack to come from there, and it comes from here, you have to pull back from there and go there, but that's too late. So you sit in the middle, and you don't expect the attack from any particular direction. So in the same way, all this applies to yoga. You can be watchful, you can be concentrated, you can be alert. But all that will ever teach you is what not to do. How not to use the mind. Because it will get you into deeper and deeper and deeper binds. You have to let it happen. Just like you have to let yourself go to sleep. You can't try to go to sleep. You have to let yourself digest your food. 
you can't try to digest it. And so in the same way, you have to let yourself wake up. Become liberated. And when you find out, you see, that there isn't any way of forcing it, that, for most people, is the only way of getting them to stop forcing it. Because they won't believe when you tell them in the first instance, you've got to do this without forcing it. They'll say, well, that, it won't work, it won't happen. Because I'm very unevolved, I'm just an ordinary human being, I'm just poor little me. And if I don't force it, nothing will happen. I people who think that if they uh, don't s struggle and strain, they won't have a bowel movement or uh, whatever it is. They think they've got to do that work <laughs> in order to yeah, make it his examples. In other words, all that is based on lack of faith, not trusting life. And to get people to trust life who don't trust it, you have to trick them. They won't jump into the water, so you have to throw them in. And if they are very unwilling to be thrown in, they're going to take diving lessons, you see, in which they're going to go all through, they're going to read books about diving, they're going to do all the preliminary exercises for diving, and they're going to stand on the edge of the diving board and inquire whether there's the right posture until... <laughs> Somebody comes up his side and kicks them in the butt. <laughs> and they're in the water. What? This guy's cracking himself up here. And it's also with this. It really is. So, now the most amazing gamesmanship goes on in the whole domain of yoga and spiritual practice. You would be astounded. So, I mean, one of the games in all this is to find a little flaw in you, see? Everybody has a place where they can be jiggled a bit. Something they're a bit ashamed of, and so they think, does this person really know my secret? He's not saying anything because he's polite, but does he really see through me and know that somewhere are the awful awfuls and that I'm a little bit upsettable? This is all part of religious competition. If you go to the Roman Catholics and uh, you've studied, uh, you've been psychoanalyzed, you see, they'll say, well, that's fine, but um, of course it's not nearly enough. I mean, that's uh, all very well so far as it goes. But, or if you're a Roman Catholic and you go to a Buddhist uh, outfit that's on a missionary basis, they'll say, yes, uh, of course, through your Catholicism, you've learned some of the basic virtues, but of course, Catholicism doesn't go anywhere near the heart of things. In this, it doesn't have an elaborate system of meditation like we have. Then you go over to uh, the Hindu school and they say, as the Buddhists uh, go to a certain point, they do attain a very, very high stage of realization, but uh, there is nevertheless something higher than that, which they don't quite get. And you will find this all round the world. Everybody claiming to have that little special extra essence which the others don't have. Now, why are they doing that? Are they all frauds? Are they all, all out to get you into their society? Sometimes, yes. But sometimes they're trying to see whether you fall for this, testing you out. This is upaya 
skillful method. And if you become falling for that little extra special thing that's just supposed to be around the corner, no? then they've got you. Or rather, you've got yourself in a mix. And you have to work at that and work at that and work at that until you find out that you were being made a monkey of. But you were being made a monkey of because you could be made a monkey of. You hadn't really arrived where you are. You didn't have the nerve to be you. That is to say, to be the self. And so you had always to feel that there was something beyond that. The stage higher. See? So that's why, for example, masonry is such a success. It has 33 degrees. <laughs> and you know, you can go up that ladder and get higher and higher status. The more degrees, the merrier. There have been things that have vented hundreds of degrees. And they're an immense success. Because you can postpone it longer and longer, like Achilles overtaking the tortoise. Uh, he doesn't overtake it in the problem because we keep dividing and dividing the space between Achilles and the tortoise as he approaches the tortoise. What delays Achilles overtaking the tortoise is not Achilles, but our calculations about how he approaches it. We make the calculations more and more complicated as he gets nearer and nearer to the tortoise. It's only the calculations that put it off. Achilles, in fact, runs right by. So in the same way, you can calculate yourself out of liberation. You can put it off indefinitely by inventing new degrees and new stages. But actually, when you get it, you don't get it. You uh, suddenly see it. It happens instantly. It happens instantly whether you put in 30 years practice or whether you put in three minutes. It's the same. It suddenly it dawns on you that that's the way things are. Tatvamasi. Medieval society in the West, comparable to Hindu society allowed people to check out of the game. It, it, it revered and encouraged hermits, monks, nuns, our various types of discipline. There's this difference, you see, for the West and India. You couldn't join the Brahmana caste, the priest caste, from some other caste. But in the European caste system, by becoming a priest or a cleric of any kind, you see, a cleric means simply a literate person. You could familiarize with any other caste once you're in that one. And so it was a wonderful way of rising in society. You could, from being a serf, go to being a priest, to being an archbishop, and consort with the nobility. It was the only way open to cross castes, you see. And because they were the literate people, 
It was through literacy and through universities founded by clerics that our caste system began to break. And we got the idea of choosing your own vocation and not simply following what your parents did. Now I want to make an observation here about checking out of the game. This is not encouraged in contemporary society. Because the Catholic Church and the, say, the Episcopalian Church are very powerful minorities, they can still support monasteries and even hermits. But you can't be one on your own without great difficulty. Firstly, because you're a poor consumer. See, around here, there are, we have a number of hermits. There's a guy out there building that boat, and he's essentially a non-joiner, a poor consumer. And uh, the community, uh, they live a lot along here. And they're mostly, they're not um, working class people. They are people who dropped out of college because they saw it was stupid. And they're that sort of people. We would call them perhaps beatniks. Uh, but you see, the city doesn't like it because they aren't owning the right sort of cars and therefore the local car salesman isn't doing business through them. Uh, they don't have lawns and so nobody can sell them lawnmowers. They hardly uh, use dishwashers, appliances of that kind. They don't need them. And also they wear blue jeans and uh, things like that and so the local dress shops feel a bit put out having these people around, and they, have very, they live very simply. Well, they, you, you mustn't do that. You've got to live in a complicated way. You've got to have the, the kind of car, you know, that identifies you as a person of substance and status and all that. So there's a great problem here in our society. Now, why is there this problem? There's always a very inconsiderable minority of these non-joiners or people who check out of the game. But you will find that insecure societies are the most intolerant of those who are non-joiners. They are so unsure of the validity of their game rules that they say, everyone must play. Now that's a double bind. You can't say to a person, you must play, because what you're saying is, you are required to do something which will be acceptable only if you do it voluntarily. <laughs> you see? So everyone must play is the rule in the United States. And it's the rule in almost all Republican governments. I mean Republican in the sense of uh, de democratic. <laughs> because they're very uneasy. Because everybody is responsible. You mean you may try not to be and avoid it and say, oh, let the senators take care of it or the president. But theoretically, everyone's responsible. Now, that's terrifying. See, it's all like when you know what's right. There is an aristocracy, there is the clergy, and they know what should, should be done, and they're used to ruling, you see. But now it's, it's in your hands. You say, well, what are, what are, what are we going to do? Well, I think this way, and you think that way, and he thinks the other way. 
And so we're all unsettled. And therefore we become more and more conformist. Individualism, rugged individualism, always leads to conformism. Because people get scared. And so they herd together and it compounded with industrial society, mass production, etc. They all wear the same clothes and they're sensible clothes that don't show the dirt too much and uh, we get duller and drabber and uh, with the exception of the Californian Revolution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it must have been a product of the time. So what, the reason for this is in a way that Democracy as we have tried it started out on the wrong foot. You see, in the scriptures, in the Christian scriptures, it says everybody is equal in the sight of God. Now that's a mystical utterance. That means that from the standpoint of God, all people are divine and are playing their true function. And that is something that is true on a certain plane of consciousness. But come down a step and try to apply the mystical insight in the practical affairs of everyday life, and what do you get? You get a parody of mysticism. You get the idea, not that everybody is equal in the sight of God, but that all people are equally inferior. And that's why all bureaucracies are rude, why the police are rude, and why you are made to wait in lines and uh, are uh, obstreperous income tax individuals and all, all that sort of person. <coughs> because everybody's a crook. Everybody's equally inferior. See, that becomes the parody of democracy. And that kind of society, watch out for it. It turns in a quick click into fascism because of its terror of the outsider. Now, a free and easy society loves outsiders. In fact, it's a little bad for the outsider's integrity because he becomes uh, the holy man, see? And uh, people make uh, salams and uh, give him food and uh, all that. They really take care of the outsider because they know that man is doing for us what we haven't got the guts to do. That outsider who lives up there in the mountain is at the highest peak of human evolution. His consciousness is one with the divine. And great, just there is someone like that around. It makes you feel a little better. He has realized, he knows what it's all about. And so we need a number of those people. Even though they don't join our game, they tell us, you see, what you're doing is only a game. It's okay, I'm not going to condemn you, but it is only a game. And we up on that mountaintop are watching you. We love you, we have compassion for you. And, uh, but excuse please, we aren't going to join. <laughs> so that gives the community great strength because it tells the government in no uncertain terms that there's something more than government. That's why wise kings kept not only priests but court fools. The court fool is much more effective than the priest. You want to, go in to remind the king that after all he's human and uh, you know how in Richard II where the fool is called the antic the king says 
within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his watch. And there the antic sits, scoffing at his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a little time to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks. And then at last comes death, and with a pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. See, always this reminder of the priest or of the antic to the royalty, to the government. You are going to die. You are mortal. Don't give yourself airs and graces as if you were a god. As king, you are only a representative of God. And there is a force, there are domains uh, way, way beyond yours and way, way higher. But it's very difficult for a republican government to realize that because it's insecure. And therefore, in our present world, you cannot abandon nationality without the greatest difficulty. People who try to abandon nationality get constantly deported from one place to another. You must belong to this thing, as Thoreau put it. However far into the forests you may go, men will pursue you and compel you to belong to their desperate company of odd fellows. <laughs> <laughs>
And that was kind yes. of the crux of the whole that thing. That was huge. That was really what made it go deep was the fact that he was talking about that self, that source self. And it just made me remember all my deepest psychedelic experiences, all my deepest DMT experiences. It's like, yes, you go to that place and you remember and you're there and then you come back here. And he's reminding us, he's putting it into words because it's in Hinduism, it's in Taoism and Buddhism. It's it's going back to that. The, he said the Brahmin, you know, he's talking about mm -hmm. the Brahmin. He's talking about yeah, all these everyone things. everyone is, yeah. Yes, getting back to that understanding that you are God. You're just manifesting through this very strange experience of having this singular life and, and what that looks like, that individual pattern of energy. But right. in the sense, you can pull it all the way back to that. It's very mind-blowing. That, that hits super hard. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely seemed like the crux of really everything. That's what it all came down to, you know, when he was talking about there's no method to arrive uh, to where you are. And the searching itself implies that you're, you know, to seek is to push it away, To that the searching is to be without it. And that it, it's like this, you know, like you can't separate a front and a back. And that's simple and profound at the same time. Um, and that, that whole thing that he was, you know, like, uh, you know, when he was talking about, you know, having this conversation with the guru of like, well, what do I do to like, I know what it is, but how do I feel it? And, and then, you know, he's just really blunt about, will you go searching it because you're afraid of it? And so then you create all these methods to postpone it because if you could just, put that right in front of you if you could just be who you are and realize you're the self and know that you're God and all those things you wouldn't need to be searching for it and you wouldn't need to postpone it and yes and he said the the guru shows you that you already have what you're looking for I remember him saying that mm -hmm. and in a way this seeking for the guru is like a shamanic initiation but the true shamanic initiation, nobody's going to initiate you. You have to initiate yourself, which I thought was so interesting because we talked about that on a previously recorded but yet to be released episode. The next episode of Midnight on Earth, which is which features the incredible No Simple Road. But anyways, getting Ooh. back to that, what do you think about that, Bryn? Oh, definitely. I um I wrote that down as well about the guru's job being to uh, show you that you're already where you're at and depending on how hard-headed or hard-shelled you are and how far you need to go, then the more tricks and tests and, you know, okay, you got to make it through 64 levels as if that's what you really need. Do you need two levels or 64 levels or 10,000 levels? Like what, how far do you need to go to, you know, trials and tribulations to just get back to your starting point? Um, but also I liked that he touched on the non-human gurus because I think there's this connotation yeah. of what a guru is and it's this, you know, has, has to have this definition and that there are the non-human gurus. The it could be situational. Yeah, yes. situational. Absolutely. Holy cow. And I thought of just, I thought of plants, of course. Like I feel like plants are gurus and pretty much every single time the plant leads me back to myself that I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what needs to be healed. I know, you know, it's, it's, I know what plant I need to, you know, commune with it. it it's already there. And so that, that really spoke to that for me. Anything that snaps you out of that ego mindset, that ego perspective and 
get you to re-frequency yourself in such a way that you're resonating with the self. Right, because then you're just in the divine flow. It's It's just there. Because it's all the whole thing. You could strip all of reality, every aspect of it down, just call the whole thing the guru if you really wanted to, if you really, because it's truly what it is. But Did you know that the other word for guru is earth? I thought you were going to say like the other word for guru is Arug, like guru backwards. Oh yeah, no, but I was just kidding. <laughs> but that's what it feels like, like well, yeah, being on Earth. Earth, Earth like is the guru. Thing. Yes, and it could be. <laughs> it could shows up in all the different layers: the physical, the Earth layer, the cosmic, or it could just l- literally be everything situational. Person it shows up in a person. It shows mm-hmm. up in you. It shows up in your friend. It, it, Planets, Mercury. <sighs> Mercury's a guru. Well, you just Saturn's don't want to. I mean, it just shows the great infiniteness of the divine. It's just mm-hmm. another. And the ripple of how everything is, you know, that above and below, yeah. that everything is the inside and the outside that, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could go on and on. We I mean, could definitely go on. I didn't realize there was a term for the feeling of being one with the universe, the oceanic feeling i, like I liked that, that too i liked that the oceanic feeling and that's definitely a good description everyone is equal in the sight of god i thought that was cool something we talk about constantly on this podcast literally <laughs> the last episode of this podcast we were just talking about that so just come off it yeah, <laughs> it's only a game. It's only a game. And I like, I mean, the ending was, it's almost like he kind of switched gears because at the ending, he sort of had that little warning in there of talking about how, you know, insecure societies then push conformity because, and there again, no, is it was that very fear. Timely. It was very timely. Very timely. I very feel like reflective. we're really in that right now. And He's that's trying a fear. to help us. Alan Watts is reaching through time and space and this podcast to try to re- ignite the thinking around this i think that that's very true and it's so pertinent for right now and i think it all is a fear like people are are in such a state of fear and they're searching and then handing out all these rules in order to uh yeah i don't know what's going on (laughs) i don't either i don't either but yeah well bryn thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate you being back coming back for our lecture episode Everyone, we are going to have the No Simple Road Grateful Dead Jam Bam podcast. I'm excited for that Mel, episode. Mel, Apple, and Aaron have come on the show. It's already recorded, so they can't be abducted by aliens at the last <laughs> second. Like, contact tour. Not sure what happened with those guys. I hope they come back to this planet if they want to. If they've been tasked with some sort of divine cosmic mission and they're out there living that life then godspeed contact tour but until then you know call me because i don't know what the hell happened (laughs) and everyone listen we'll see you next week midnight on earth